Thank you very much for that. That was lovely. Let's turn our Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 3. This is the, what we call in medicine, the postprandial session, which means a series of your red blood cells now are making their way to your gut, which means fewer of them are north of the ears to try and keep you awake and thinking, but my objective is to uh, carry you through until Joe's ministry. Um, so I hope to uh, keep you awake for the next little bit as we think a little bit more about deserts. But let's read here in Luke chapter 3, just the first few verses of Luke chapter 3. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip tetrarch of Iturea and of the region of Trachonitis, and Linsanius, the tetrarch of Abilene, Annas and Caiaphas being the high priests, the word of God came unto John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. We'll stop there. I like that passage, despite the challenging names. All these big, important people, and then the line, but the word, came, the word of the Lord came to John the Baptist in the wilderness. I like that. We've been thinking a little bit about deserts so far. I suspect some of you may have not been able to be at the earlier sessions, so by quick review for you and repetition for the rest of us, we've trying to wrap our minds around the concept of the wilderness or the desert in the Word of God. Deserts are prolific in the Word of God. We're trying to focus some of our thoughts primarily in the New Testament where it's referred to about 350 times. You've noticed that deserts are desolate, they're dangerous, and they're dry. We've now tried to look at a series of events in the New Testament that occur in the desert, in the wilderness, to help us experience in our own mind, in our own hearts and minds when we should be making our way to the desert. So, so far we've talked about the desert being a place of solitude, a place where we need to go alone. We challenged ourselves a little bit to think about what time, to think about the time. I, I you know... I still get picked on in Arizona about my accent. I've tried to shed the A, and I've tried to shed, shed the sorry, uh, but the about is still a little bit hard to let go of. So we'll have a little vestige of Canada here. Uh, but we, we tried to think a little bit about um, the time we spend alone with the Lord and how absolutely fundamental that is. We're going to literally, in almost every one of these points, come back to that notion of time alone with God. There's no magic key, as it were, to living the faith the way the Lord wants us to live it. It's a relationship that has to be cultured. And if you're going to have a strong relationship with your spouse, with your child, with anyone, it's going to take time. Dedicated, quality time. What kind of quality time are we spending with the Lord? We saw how it so heavily influenced individuals in the Scripture and their fellowship with him, and their ability to come back to the Lord in repentance, as we saw in the life of Jacob, and the security and the satisfaction that David tasted of by being alone with God. It's a marvelous thing to share with the Lord's people, and we want that, and I encourage that, and the Lord designed us and built us that way. He built that social element into us, but the foundation of your faith is built on your personal relationship with the Lord Jesus. There's only so much you can take in 
by osmosis. There's only so much you can take in by the crowd. How much are you taking in alone with the Lord? Secondly, we thought of it as a place of separation. Or the Lord Jesus had separated himself from the crowds to pray. And time and time again, we see how the Lord calls his people. And literally, we're the called out ones. That's what the church, you know, as you know, literally means. The ones who are called out of the world. Now, we're not called out of the world to go hide ourselves in a corner and wait for the Lord Jesus to return. Within the context of the world, we're called out. We thought of ourselves as little boats or little ships that are designed to be in the water, but need to be cleaned, need to be trained, need to be maintained on a regular basis as the water splashes in. Well, for our session this afternoon, I'd like to think about a few more aspects of the desert with you. I want you to think of the desert with me as a place of revelation, a place of preparation, and a place of rest. Revelation, preparation, and rest. Revelation. As we noted here from Luke chapter 3, I thought it was fascinating that when all these big and important people were doing things, the Lord revealed the word of God in the wilderness to, I mean, no disrespect to John the Baptist, but to someone who was really not in the same league as people like Pontius Pilate or Annas and Caiaphas. That's fascinating, isn't it? That's often how the Lord has worked. That's no disrespect to our political leaders or people of significant authority. We ought to be praying for them. We ought to know that that, that Ultimate authority is always held in the hand of God. So every authority below him is dispensed, in a sense, from him. But nonetheless, the Lord has chosen the weak things of this world. He's chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And it's remarkable, so often, how that has been the Lord's modus operandi, if I can use that phrase, over the centuries of the past. That the Lord Jesus was not born in the palace of Jerusalem was born in a manger in Bethlehem. And he's chosen this unusual tactic and way, which, of course, is a beautiful tactic and way to have us appreciate who he is and what he does on our behalf. But here in the midst of all these important people, we're told that John the Baptist was shown the word of God there in the wilderness. And I would suggest to you that this is not just about John the Baptist but many, many others, that it appears to be some sort of connection between the wilderness and the revelation that the Lord gives. You could think of many examples, couldn't you? Think of people like Moses, people like Abraham, people like David, people like Daniel, times in their life where in the wilderness things were revealed to them. But let me suggest that it's not just being in the wilderness. So let's all, you know, leave the meeting, go sit out in the desert somewhere, you know, drive over to Palm Springs or something, find your little plot of sand and say, okay, Lord, I'm listening. I'm here. It's not about geography. It's about intimacy. And there's this beautiful connection that many have made that's fairly evident in the scripture between intimacy and revelation. And that's really not a shocker. Is it? What is intimacy? Well, there are different ways we could define it. I think when you think of the word intimacy, you tend to think of physical intimacy, but it's much more than that. Intimacy is really sharing something with someone that you wouldn't share with somebody else, be it emotional, psychological, or physical. 
If I'm intimate with my friend, I'm sharing with them something that's special to me. We see that at either extreme. If you have something that is sad and breaks your heart, or something that is joyous and makes your heart happy, you're probably not just going to stand on the street corner and call it out to people you've never heard of before. You're going to call someone that you trust. Which, of course, begs a whole other discussion that we need to be careful with whom we're intimate. Samson stands as a tremendous example to us of the dangers of sharing your heart with someone. Even if he wasn't going to share, if you will, physical intimacy. The fact that he shared his heart with individuals land him into trouble. So I say this to everybody in the room, but in particular to the young people. Be careful who you open your heart to. You might say, oh, I'm not going to get involved with this person, but I'm just going to share this burden or this frustration or this sadness and this maybe even happiness in your life. I'm not saying you have to be secretive about everything in your life, but select carefully who become your intimates, if I can use that phrase. Even if it's what you would consider to be purely on an emotional level. Because that's where physical intimacy comes. But that being said, the point of this, of this section is to appreciate the importance of our intimacy with God. You've heard the phrase before, I'm sure, God doesn't have favorites, he has intimates. Well, are you intimate with God? Could you be considered an intimate of God? Because that is, as far as I can see from the scripture, the path to revelation. Not that I'm asking for God to give me a new revelation per se today. It's all here ready. I don't need to go and find something new. I've been at places where times people say that they're sort of a modern day prophet. And you know, if God is going to bring a tornado to the southwest, then he's going to tell me first. Those kinds of things always disturb me. Not the tornadoes, the comment. Um, and it's not to make light of it, but it's disturbing when you think of the implications of that kind of thing. But why do we need to just go and start looking for new things? We have it all year. I like to use the phrase, the phrase rediscovering the truth. Have you taken time to rediscover the truth for yourself? Or do you just trust Reese and Mikhail standing here behind the pulpit? I mean, hopefully you trust us a little bit at least. But I hope, in particular for the young people, I hope that your sense of what the truth is of Scripture isn't just based on what we've said or what these great books say, and they're great, and you ought to read them. But can you find it yourself? Not, not, I'm not trying to get too strict to, you know, chapter and verse, brother. Give me the exact reference for why we do this or that. But there has to be to some degree of that. Or we'll devolve like so many others in the so-called faith whose faith is based on what someone taught them as opposed to what the Word of God taught them. And here's the fundamental difference. The Word of God, when we come to the Word of God, the Holy Spirit is the teacher. When someone is standing behind a pulpit, the Holy Spirit may be the teacher and may not be. But we trust that everything that is said from this pulpit is appropriate. But it may not all be entirely accurate, speaker included. 
So my trust and hope is if something is said that's inappropriate, that it'll be dealt with in the hearts of the believers through the Spirit of God or sometimes through the leadership of an assembly. I think that's one of the reasons why um, the Lord designed a local church the way he has, with checks and balances, that if something crops up within the church and it's inappropriate and there's false teaching, that it gets dealt with. That someone doesn't just have to go write another essay or, or a dissertation to counteract what someone might have said somewhere in an ivory palace. That difference is important. But the, the, the beauty of what we have access to is that you have access yourself to the Spirit of God to teach you the truths of the Word of God. Imagine in high school you're asked to write a paper on a famous book. Let's pick on William Shakespeare. And you're supposed to write about what Hamlet really felt like. I mean, nobody really knows. But, um, and you're sitting there at your desk the night before thinking, oh, did Dixon give me this project? I really don't want to do this. Um, and magically appears beside you. Trust me, I'm, I'm not losing it, okay? Um, magically appears beside you William Shakespeare. Well, this is convenient, right? And he says, look, let me tell you what I really meant when I wrote that. That would hopefully at least get you a B on the paper, right? I want you to imagine, I'm not getting too fanciful about it, I want you to imagine the next time you're sitting down to read the Word of God, that the Spirit of God is sitting right beside you. In fact, He's closer than that. We're sealed with the Spirit of God as we heard. And He can illuminate your mind and your heart to understand what's there in the Word of God. I find it fascinating that in the list of spiritual gifts, of which there's no list that claims to be exhaustive, but we have lists of spiritual gifts that every believer is given at least one of them as we understand it. There's no gift for understanding Scripture. There might be people who are empowered to teach it to others or to stir the hearts of the saints to to, to, uh, delve into the Word of God more and to understand it more, but... There's no understanding Bible gift. And with no disrespect to Joe or myself, just because we happen to be the preachers of this conference doesn't mean I can understand this text any better than you can. We'll come to a moment talk about preparation. The preparation for the service of God is not by virtue of someone's position or someone's age or what degrees they have, and that's not to misspeak degrees. I have more of the degrees than a thermometer, but I don't, make the, make, I don't think for a moment that they qualify me to be a minister of the Word of God. My understanding of the Scripture must come from my direct relationship with the Lord Jesus. How is it that there are such incredible, brilliant minds in the religious world today and they can't see the simplicity and the beauty of the gospel. Their foolish hearts are darkened. Sin blinds them. We have the opportunity to have that intimacy with the Lord, which gives us a direct path to revelation. You don't believe me? Let me give you a few examples. Notice these people, and they're intimate with God and how it gave them revelation. The Lord was very obviously frustrated with what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. So he was going to destroy it. Notice the words of the Lord. 
how can I go and destroy Sodom and Gomorrah unless I tell my friend? Who's his friend? Abraham. I mean, you've had that experience, haven't you? Not that I... Not that you have the power to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, but uh, you know you have an important event in your life. You have something that's coming. You want to tell someone. You go to someone you're close to, and you share it with them. Well, Abraham was literally the friend of God. He was so intimate, if you will, with the Lord that he was given the revelation of what was to come in judgment. You're still not sure. I see some people not sure. Okay, well, let's give you a few more examples. David. David was getting on in his life. He realized the Lord had blessed him immensely. And he struck one day that he lived in this palace, but the Lord lived in a tent. And no disrespect to housekeeping, but, you know, tents are tents, <laughs> And he said to the Lord, Lord, you know, through the prophet, he said, I, Lord, it's not fair that I live in a, in, a, in a mansion, in a palace, and you live in a tent. I'm going to build you a house. Pretty good proposal, you think? What does the Lord say back to David? The Lord says to David, you know, David, no, you're not going to build me a house. I'll tell you what. I... We'll build you a house. It's kind of like God, isn't it? Like, try to outgive God. Try it. It's a lot of fun. Because he always outgives you. Right? I love how the Lord does that. I had a dear friend of mine back in Toronto. He was a lawyer. And um, we would try and have lunch together once a month. I was trying to lead him to the Lord. And, and we, we, um, we shared a lot of things. And um, it was a bit of a, a, a completely... Uh, uh, it's an example that clearly doesn't match that of the Lord, but we got into this sort of battle of who is going to pay the bill, right? And, and it was one of those where, you know, after you, no, really, after you, no, really, after you, you know, that kind of situation you've been in at a door. So it would reach the point where, you know, I would call the restaurant the day before we went and gave them my credit card to make sure that he didn't pay the bill. And then he would call the restaurant, change our reservation to a different restaurant, pay the bill, then call me and tell me that that first restaurant couldn't accommodate us. And I mean, it reached a point where, I mean, I was trying to find ways to pay the bill, and Leon was trying to find ways, and, and we just went this back and forth. It was really quite entertaining. Heather always wanted to know, you know, who got it this time. And some ways, I know it's a bad example, but isn't that the way God is? You just try to outgive God. It's more blessed to give than to receive. He's always the more blessed. He's always the giver. So he comes to David and says, no, 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 David, I'm going to build you a house. And I'm going to give you a son. And that son will build me a house. Do you think David took from that that he was going to have a son and that son was going to build the temple? I think he understood that. But I would like to suggest that he understood a whole lot more than that. That the Lord revealed to David that day that from his very lineage would come the Messiah of God. 
That's bigger news than Solomon building a temple. And that's, a, that's big news itself, isn't it? It's one of my favorite passages in the whole of the Word of God. Because you know what David did? It says he went and he sat down in the presence of the Lord. That doesn't happen too often in the Scripture. Have you ever, has someone said to you, I've got really important news to tell you. Are you sitting down? Because you're worried that the news is going to be so impactful that it might knock them over. That's what happened with David. Oh, in one of the most beautiful outbursts of praise and worship in the word of God, David sat down and said, Oh, Lord, do as thou hast said. He said, Who am I that my son will build you a house forever? Intimacy and revelation. David was a man after God's own heart. Despite David's challenges and failures, he had a proximity and intimacy with God. And the list goes on. Daniel, was there anyone in the Old Testament that you and I could argue had a better grasp of future events than Daniel? Anyone else? That's the right answer. I'm not trying to praise Daniel over others per se, but I I think that Daniel had a better understanding of future events than anyone else in the Old Testament. Daniel's the one on his knees three times a day. He was so regular in his prayer life that other people knew it. I don't think people can say that of me. And so when he wrote about what was to come, and go back and read Daniel's prophecy of the future. He has a tremendously Christ-centric view of the future. As he looked and saw that man who stood above the river. One last one, just to cap and prove the point. Who do you think is the most intimate person with the Lord Jesus during his earthly ministry? Starts with J and rhymes with Mon. John, very good. I mean, is there anyone who's described more closely to the Lord Jesus than John? It says that he rested his his head on his chest. He he was the the disciple whom whom Jesus loved. You can't get more intimate than that. Who is selected to write the book of Revelation? With intimacy comes revelation. You want to know what God has for you? You want to have a deeper capacity of your understanding of God? Yes, in one sense, we never get beyond John 3.16. I understand that. But do you want a deeper understanding, a greater capacity, a bigger filter, a bigger glass, whatever phrase you want to use? Do you want to take God in in sips or in chugs, if I can put it that way? That is going to be directly, directly proportional to your intimacy with God. Perhaps a topic of a future conference But I might even suggest that it goes beyond this life. That our capacity of enjoyment of the Lord in the eternal ages to come is well connected to the capacity we develop here. Believers are in some ways described as shining lights and stars in the universe. One of the first things you notice when you go to look at stars at night on a clear night is some are brighter than others. I don't mean that from an IQ standpoint. 
Some of them have a greater capacity to shed and radiate light than others. What kind of capacity are you developing to enjoy God? Try to think of other analogies. They all fall short. Food. No? Do you look at food as just calories to get you through the day? Most of us get a few more calories than we need in our food. But have we developed a greater appreciation and understanding, if you will, an, an appetite for God? I know that sounds a little bit trite, but what is your appetite for God? You know, we sing pretty impressive hymns and songs. We long after the Lord. We sing hymns that state to the Lord that nothing else gives us greater satisfaction than Him. And I wonder sometimes if we're being genuinely truthful, speaker included. How do you develop that capacity for God? Well, that's a whole discussion of itself. How do you develop that appetite? Well, how do you develop an appetite for anything? It took me almost 10 years to get Heather to start eating sushi with me. Now, let's be honest, brothers and sisters, sushi is a very biblical phenomenon, right? I mean, did he really have time to, to cook all that fish in the five loaves and the two fishes that we read yesterday? I think that clearly justifies my sushi consumption, nonetheless. <laughs> but for those who want to cook their fish, you can do that too, because the Lord did. There was, there was a fire of coals beside the sea when, in John 21 when he, when he fed the disciples. So if you really want to cook it, go ahead, but... Let me tell you, it's better raw. But nonetheless, um, and Heather would be okay with me telling the story. But, you know, we've been married. We'll have our anniversary this week, 16 years. Very thankful for that. And um, year after year, early on in our marriage, I was trying to convince her. I mean, come on, honey, just taste it. I mean, I, I sounded like I was the tempter, you know. Come on, just taste it. Just this once. We won't tell your parents. You know, come on. Um, but eventually... She started with a simple little California roll and this. And now, Sunday night, sushi night, asked me yesterday, what time do you fly home tomorrow? Because are we going to have Sunday night sushi night or not? You know? um, so I will be home for Sunday night sushi night. And that's why we'll still have an anniversary this week. But, um, uh, but you know, it was, it was clearly an acquired taste. It took time. And most things are like that. Yes, some things you just love the taste of it the first time around. But sometimes the things of God, indeed, so many of them are sweet the first time around. Time around. Sometimes they can be a little bitter, let's be honest. And sometimes we look at things, the things of God, and we say it's a bit bitter, but we know it's good for us. We'll kind of force it down. Come on. Please tell me you've gotten past that. Come and see. Taste and see. The Lord is good. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. Let's build a greater capacity to enjoy the Lord. That goes beyond singing the same hymns we sing every week. Bringing the same thoughts in our mind and heart to the Lord's Supper. That's a wonderful thing and I'm glad we do that. But have you gotten beyond those few precious text that, yes, I want you to continue to enjoy, but have you gone further? Have, are you building fresh memories with God every week? What new thing have you enjoyed about the Lord this week? 
Let's build a bigger capacity. It is a place of revelation. There are many more examples we could give, but time is going quickly. So he says it's a place of revelation. It's a place of preparation. Come to Matthew chapter 3, please. Matthew chapter 3. We briefly made reference to uh, John the Baptist. John the Baptist is an excellent example to us here of preparation. John, Matthew chapter 3, verse 1, In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judah, and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And the same John had in his raiment camel's hair, and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. Sadly, no sushi in the wilderness. <laughs> John the Baptist is a beautiful example to us in many respects of being in the wilderness as preparation. What do I mean as a place of preparation? What I mean is this. So often before the Lord employed someone in ministry, particularly in public ministry, but not always in public ministry, he took them for a period of time in the wilderness. We'll talk a little bit tomorrow about the Lord Jesus in the wilderness in the time of temptation and how, in a sense, he did not need that preparation. But notice the number of individuals that spent a period of time in the wilderness preparing for their ministry. Many of them that we could think of. And John the Baptist is one of them. He had to get accustomed, if you will, to the wilderness. He, he, he was struggling. I mean, look at his diet. I'm not sure that he... Grew up eating locusts. Not at the top of my list, but he had to struggle. And that's not to say that you have to go through some, you know, tough life hazing kind of process to be able to be used of God. But if we're going to be used of God, it's going to be because we're prepared. Now, you heard me say earlier, preparation doesn't mean that someone has to go to a particular school or college, and that's no disrespect to Bible schools and colleges. They play a role. But the sheer presence in a college doesn't formally prepare someone for ministry, be it public or not public. What really prepares people for ministry? What, what was it that made, in the time of the New Testament church, what made those people in the book of Acts astounded at the disciples. It says they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. That is the ultimate preparation. To have spent time alone with the Lord. But in doing so, there is work to be done, isn't there? The Lord gives us examples and parables that those who are able to produce those who are able to be good stewards of what small amount they have, the Lord will give them more. And it's a natural work in the work of God, isn't it? That we use whatever we have in our power to serve the Lord. I say this very often to the young people that, you know, you don't have to wait until you become a gray comb over to be used of the Lord. Now, that's no disrespect to gray hair. I'm starting to sprout more and more of it every week. But if we have this sort of thinking that, well, the work of God is going to carry on in people who are the elderly, then we're going to be in trouble. 
By contrast, we need to be prepared to serve the Lord. Prepared personally in our time alone with the Lord. Prepared, as we talked about this morning, understanding the armor of God. By the way, uh, it's kind of hard to use the armor if you don't know what it is. might want to spend some time in the book of Ephesians before the end of the weekend. It's kind of hard to understand your equipment if you don't even know how to name it. That soldier will not fare particularly well, will he? If he doesn't even know what's in his backpack. Sometimes I think that's what happens to us. We don't realize the resources that the Lord has given to us at our disposal to be able to serve him. But a beautiful truth that we see here in these individuals in their preparation, in fact there are several truths, one is it gives us a sense of ratio, if I can use that word, meaning that it was very It was not very often that the Lord called someone and immediately launched them into service. We see more often a period of preparation. We see a period of time that those who were serving and ministering in the early church then were called out to be more involved or became deacons. The greatest example is the Lord Jesus himself. We all wonder sometimes why was it that the Lord waited until he was approximately 30 to launch his public ministry. And this is the Lord Jesus himself who has all the resources of the universe available to him. Was he teaching us? Was he giving us a, not that I want to formalize the ratio of 30 years of preparation for his three years of service. Does that mean if I'm going to preach for an hour, I need to prepare for 10? That's actually not a bad ratio for those of you who prepare for ministry. I hope you don't think we just stand up here and wing it. If anything, as I serve the Lord and uh, minister in this capacity, I've tried to reduce my volume of public ministry to put more focus in our local assembly. More and more do I realize that this time is valuable, and I don't want to waste it. So I want to be prepared when I stand up before you to try and encourage you in the things of God. Moses was carried into the wilderness been a bit of a change for him after living in the palace and living in Pharaoh's court now all of a sudden being in the wilderness someone has said it took 40 years to get Egypt out of him so that he could see a different perspective the apostle Paul was taken into the wilderness wasn't he prior to his public ministry it's prolific it's everywhere So it's not just a ratio, it's a pattern. Thirdly, we we understand from preparation in the wilderness that there are lessons that can only be learned in the wilderness. I'm fascinated when I speak to missionaries, when I speak to individuals who have been called into the Lord's work full-time. Of course, we're all, in a sense, full-time workers, but I think you know what I mean. I speak of those who are committed into the Lord's work. I'm always interested in asking them, and I don't want to make it sound like it's a simple formula, but I'm always interested in asking them, can you tell me about the first two years of your ministry? And almost every single one of them gives me a version of this story, which is that we were launched off with love and support and encouragement, and all of a sudden, we went through this real rough, dry patch. The money stopped. People wouldn't come to our gospel outreach meetings. My son got ill. There were some kind of genuinely, deeply challenging period of time. 
I'm not saying that this is the pattern for everyone. But it's almost as if the Lord says, I'm going to bring you into the wilderness for a period of time to teach you upon whom you are dependent. That it's not about the resources of your commending assembly. It's not about the gifts that you have. It's not about your ability to plan a ministry. It's not even about the love that you have for those to whom you are trying to minister. You need to be dependent on me. And remember our overarching theme of the whole weekend. You can't live in the wilderness by yourself. You need help. And the Lord is teaching us to be dependent on him. Maybe the Lord is bringing you through one of those dry patches right now. I don't know. Perhaps he is. Take it as from him. Use it to be dependent on him. Use it to understand that your resources don't come from others. They come from him. Oh, yes, the Lord doesn't want us to be cavalier with what we have. And yes, we can all contribute to the work of God physically, financially, in all these different capacities. But ultimately, it's really all about him, isn't it? When he owns a cattle on a thousand hills, God's not short of resources. But he wants to use you to do it. And to use you to do it, you have to be in his hand. You have to be willing to be willing, as we say. Are you? Or is your service for God kind of an add-on? Now I've got my job and my family and I've got three or four hobbies and a few interests and the service of God. Like it's an add-on. I'm not saying that you are involved in the public active service of the Lord 24-7. You have to take care of your family. You have to go to your job. It's okay to have hobbies. But the reality is, we are ambassadors for Christ 24-7. And all that we do, we do to the greater glory of God. And if you view your spiritual life as a few hours on a Sunday morning and the intermittent prayer meeting on a Wednesday or Tuesday night, you're missing it. You're missing the joy of it. You're missing the wilderness experience that will bring you closer to the Lord. Before we close off, let me just make quick mention of the, of the final um, uh, feature of the desert. We've talked about uh, solitude, separation, revelation, preparation. Now let's just close off in the last two minutes and talk a little bit about rest. Uh, just turn quickly to read that one verse again in Mark chapter 6. I know we've read it a few times, but it's always nice to see it on paper. Uh, Mark chapter 6, verse 31. This is, of course, the Lord Jesus with his disciples, and he said unto them, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place and rest for a while. For there were many coming and going, and they had no leisure so much as to eat. Now you could argue this is the kettle calling the pot black with the pace that many of us keep. But there is a need for rest, isn't there? To come away from even what was good spiritual activity and care for the needs of their own. Now, interestingly, before long, they were feeding others as well, but they got their portion at the end. Those baskets were carried up at the end, and there was enough to eat for the disciples. 
So sometimes in the Lord's work, you have to, to push your needs a while, uh, your needs aside for a while, but the Lord will always restore them. God doesn't want us to, to burn out, as it were. He doesn't want us to be so exhausted that we become literally weary and well-doing. Has that happened to you? Here are a couple of signs to watch for. Are you physically exhausted? Do you spiritually, if you will, feel spent in the sense that the joy in things is lost? You start to look at spiritual activity or, or, or your, your spiritual work as, as kind of a burden or, a, or a, a responsibility that you kind of have to do but don't want to. Now, Joe even shared with us, there are times we all feel that way. There are times like, I don't want to get out of bed today. I don't want to read this or I don't want to go there. I don't want to go to Claremont. No, I mean, I want to go to Claremont. When Katie was holding my hand and crying when I was leaving, I have to tell you, I was tempted to give a little call and say, I'm not sure I can make it this weekend, but the Lord brought me here. I'm thankful for that. But there's a difference between that happening intermittently and where you see it spiraling downward. When you start seeing the work of God, careful how I say it, as your work and your ministry, When political battles and strife start to become prominent in the assembly. When you spend more time in public ministry for others, but not seeking your own sustenance. You know, if the priest is so busy serving the Lord and never has a portion to himself, that priest is not going to serve the Lord well. These are danger signs. If you start seeing them happening, You may need to ask yourself, do I need to come apart and rest for a while? That does not mean that you come off onto the sidelines and you're benched for good. The Lord clearly didn't intend for his disciples to be on the bench for a long time. It seemed wherever they went, the crowds came to them. But there were clearly periods of time that they were alone. And he ministered to them. And he strengthened them. God is not a taskmaster. I don't ever want people to leave a message thinking that I'm envisioning a kind of God who's whipping you and saying, you'll do this, you'll do this, and you'll like it. (laughs) That's not the kind of God we have. But sometimes we need a little pause, we need a little break, step aside and rest for a while. Come back with renewed vigor. I hope there are some saints here today that can, if you will, you don't think of going into the wilderness to get a bit of a break. Of course, there are some great spas in Arizona, I guess. But um, there's a time to come and rest. And the rest that they were going to have was with the Lord, not independent of the Lord. But where you think of yourself recharging your batteries instead of dispensing your batteries into others. Lord, help us to do that. I think we have a a hymn, and then we'll uh, move on to Big Joe.